Hi, Pete. This is Graham Plaster, the CEO of the Intelligence Community, Inc., and I'm really happy to have you on the call today for a podcast, which is going to be going out to a lot of innovators in the defense and intelligence sector. And I want to let them know, if they don't know already, uh, which they should, about uh, your company, BNT, and some of the work that you've been doing in the defense um, innovation space. And we're going to keep it relatively short, unless you want to talk um, at length about any of the questions, but I just want to start out with uh, allowing you to introduce yourself uh, to our audience and give a little brief bio. Awesome. Thanks, Graham. I appreciate the, the time and the, the chance to actually you know, reach out to a, a broader group of folks in the, what I would call the, the entrepreneur um, ecosystem within within the defense market. Um, I'm Pete Newell. I'm the managing partner of BMNT, uh, of a, a retired Army colonel who at the age of 50 uh, decided to start over again. Um, started a startup called BMNT and uh, a movement called Hacking for Defense that, that essentially was designed to um, help DOD find a better way to get um, technology into the hands of young folks who need it the most and, and at the same time uh, get more you know, folks from outside DOD actually involved in helping us solve the problems that, that we all know we have. Okay, so how long has BMNT been around? Yeah, we are um, four and a half years old now. So we'll turn okay. five sometime this year. So literally, I think 2013 is when we started. And okay. I tell folks that when we started the company with four guys standing on a driveway. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the company is completely bootstrapped and you know, treated like a, just like any other startup that, that you run across. But you've had some really exciting milestones, obviously, in the last uh, couple of years. Can you can you hit some of those for us? Sure. Uh, you know, I would say uh, two years after we started the company, we landed uh, on the Forbes list of the top 25 uh, veteran-founded startups in the country. Uh, I suspect that we'll end up in the Inc. 5000 list, very high on the list this year. The, the company... You know, I tell folks is unlike most things in Silicon Valley, you know, we're not venture funded. We we actually earned our keep uh, and completely bootstrap BMT, but we've grown now to 35 people in offices um, here in Palo Alto, in Washington D.C., in L.A. And uh, I've got a couple of folks up in Boston now working uh, to see what an expansion in Boston looks like for us. We've also okay. So- Spun off a couple of things to include uh, the nonprofit uh, Hacking for Defense Incorporated, which has taken over uh, the university level academic programs that we were running. Yep, okay. So you spun off Hacking for Defense Incorporated, which is a nonprofit, which is obviously growing very rapidly, and we can talk about that separately. But BMNT, you said, has offices in Palo Alto and DC and, and Los Angeles? Correct. Okay. And th- around 35 people, you said, start up from four uh, when you bootstrapped from the beginning, and uh, that's exciting. So would you say that the mission of uh, BMNT is kind of like an innovation consultancy for defense-oriented startups? Is that kind of what you do, or is it something else? You know, actually, I avoid the, I avoid the word consultancy, although that's what we started doing, uh, and that's what's actually paved the way for the company. I would say that BMT largely produces um, innovation 
products and solutions for enterprise level organizations. You know, our clientele is is largely all of the the national intelligence agencies plus you know a number of the services plus research labs. And in every case, uh, what we've done is taken you know the best and brightest of the innovation market in terms of processes and ideas that connected them into an innovation pipeline. Well, the product of what we do is actually taking that pipeline and imprinting it into the DNA of the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've read some of your articles about uh, that pipeline, and I think that's really helpful to um, articulate it so clearly for people. I think it's a bit of a quagmire, you know, all of the initiatives that have the word in- innovation in them and obviously, we're all trying to move in the same direction to solve important problems for defense. Uh, but we need more people like yourself and like Steve Blank who can lay it out clearly so everyone can see who's who in the zoo and, and how to work together. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's not, you know, I'll be the first to say it. I think there are, there are a lot of folks like me out there. I don't think that uh, there have been a whole lot who have. Uh, you simply decided to dedicate themselves to just this. Uh, and just from my personal experience across the, the innovation ecosystem is it, it is very vibrant. Uh, it is um, hard sometimes to get the right people lined up so they're working in sync with each other. You can actually see how to take an idea and turn it into a product or, or actually solve a problem. And I think that's sometimes the challenge is so lots of people doing what I would call heroic work out there um, that is um, most often not in sync with, with other folks. So I think that's what Steve and I have, have tried to do is, is line people up and get them to, to work together to actually uh, promote uh, a cleaner uh, system. Would you say that the primary challenge in um, getting innovation you know, to government is in the acquisition cycle? You know, I don't. I I uh, I personally think it's on the requirement side. I know that acquisition system has has its issues, and you know, obviously, I since the early days of working with Ben Fitzgerald and the folks at CNAS on the uh, you know the offset beyond offset working groups, you know, five years ago, I've always said that you know the the future of defense and warfare isn't about the tech as much as it is the speed of our ability to recognize something has changed, our ability to articulate that change in the problem to a group of people and agitate them to take action on it and then deliver very rapidly something into the hands of the warfighter to do something. Um, that's an entire chain of events, and it's not just the acquisition system. You have to look at you know, how do we find things? Um, right, right. How, do we, how do we write requirements for them? How do we test them? How do we... So everybody in that chain, if I call it a chain of custody, everybody in that chain of custody has issues. I think that we have overly focused on the acquisition system. And if, you know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, if, if we speed up just the acquisition system, it means that we will deliver the wrong things faster. <laughs> it doesn't fix the problem by itself. Right, right. So you wouldn't necessarily be a big champion for OTAs or some of the other rapid acquisition uh, methodologies that are trying to speed up the conveyor belt. You say it's on the requirement side. We need to fix that first before we try to troubleshoot the acquisition per se. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, 
you know, as the director of the Rapid Equipment Force, I think over a three-year period, we probably ran 400-some-odd uh, rapid projects and programs, of which I think 115 hit the battlefields, and about 20 ended up in programs of record. I think you really have to look at the entire system, what it takes to get that done. I use all kinds of contract vehicles. I think OTAs are beautiful for some things. I think there are larger contracts that are better suited for other things. I think there are places where it absolutely takes a prime to deliver something that, that you absolutely need. And mm. none of which is useful unless you've found the right problem and focus people on the right solutions. So, yes, all those things are great. It's still the issue of are you doing the right stuff to begin with? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's definitely where we are with what we're building called um, TIC Consortium is not limited to one type of acquisition like OTAs, although we are wanting to educate the public on how to get, you know, involved with that because a lot of traditional GovCons don't know about them and don't know about other types of rapid acquisition vehicles. So it's there's always a learning yep, curve. Absolutely. You know? But but I, I, I'm really, um, it's, it's given me some good fodder to think about uh, the process and the pipeline when you say that you think the requirements really is where we need to focus our reform. Um, that sounds like a policy issue in some ways. In some ways, it sounds like an education issue, educating the leadership on how to do it better. I, I think it's both. You know, I think if, without spending a whole lot of time talking contracts, if you look at the chain of events that has to take place, you may have to get through multiple activities in order to get something done rapidly. Rarely does one contract adequately cover all those activities. So, you know, the reality is you may have to, to have access to multiple different contracts and get them to work in sync with each other in order to get the work you want done. Um, yeah. I, you know, I personally always face challenges in testing and getting the right, you know, getting into the right facilities in, in a hurry to get something done was, was always painful. Um, Sometimes just getting the data we needed to back up and make sure that we knew what we were doing required us to put people on the battlefield just to gather the data. And that had nothing to do with the solution other than helping us do the right stuff. That's a different contract. So I, the way I counsel people now at the time is you got to have access to a suite of contracts, and you got to know what they're good for and what they're not good for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, so talk, let's talk about uh, hacking for defense. Um, so you guys launched that project. It's growing. Uh, what's What have been some milestones for how it got started and where it is now? You know, it started as an accident. Uh, we were actually doing something for a defense organization out of BM&T. You know, until I got to the end of it, we worked on a prototype of how to create a conversation between Silicon Valley and DOD that was about something important to DOD. And we used a problem-based scenario to generate it. It worked great. Uh, you know, fortunately, in order to make it work in a short time frame, we stole a bunch of active-duty military guys and um, veterans from Stanford Graduate School of Business and the engineering department and a bunch of other students and ran this thing. And at the end of three weeks, it went great. And, you know, we're doing an outbreak with former SecDef Bill Perry and some other folks. And we got the end of it and said, you know, despite how good it is, it's not a scalable thing mm. because, you know, graduate students don't have a lot of white space time during the year. You know, they're, I don't call them unreliable, but they got homework. 
they got projects they have to do, and you can't you can't take them constantly. The kid in the back of the room raised his hand. He had no military background at all. I said, hey, wait a minute. You know, if this been a class at Stanford, I would have taken it. It's the most valuable learning I've had all year. Uh, so Steve Blank and Bill Perry looked at each other, and they've known each other you know, from the ESL days. And the next thing we knew, nine months later, we were teaching a course called Hacking for Defense. Um, yeah, yeah. Before we launched the course, we had other universities asking us if we would um, – uh, source the the course material to them and let them teach it. Uh, so we launched the first hacking for defense class at Stanford three years ago. The following year it was taught in seven universities. At the end of that year, uh, the Australian Department of Defense asked us to launch it in Australia. I think there were seven universities there that are teaching it. Uh, the second full year it was out this year, uh, we had 11 universities teach and i think right now we're already looking at 20 plus next year uh that obviously and you know, quite honestly we did that simply without any funding streams or anything else it, it was our desire plus other folks desire to work together to create these courses the uh yeah, yeah. members of congress caught on to that and were pretty prolific in there hey we really like what you're doing and in the process, other folks came to us and said, well, you know, if that works for defense, can you do diplomacy? We ran, you know, hacking for diplomacy after that. And then said, so you had, yeah, how about health? How about manufacturing? How about commerce? We finally gave up and just labeled it H4X. You know, the, the methodology works. The, the student response to it is, is fantastic. And now we're at the point where, uh, congressional funding, you know, folks are talking serious dollars about how to expand hacking for defense or H4X as a national program, uh, not just in 20 universities, but in 50, 60, 70 universities to, to create uh, a larger and better connection between, you know, young folks in the universities and folks in DOD with real problems. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I'm a mentor uh, for a couple of uh, companies um, or, or groups through the H4X, and um, I'm really impressed by the caliber of people you're bringing through there. Obviously, you're partnering with, you know, some of the creme de la creme uh, universities, and 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 their business programs and engineering programs and design programs uh, are just putting together awesome teams. So I think that the future is bright for the program. Um, I'm also very interested if you have any kind of desire to go beyond the university with the program or if you're going to limit the scope, um, which I mean, makes sense. But, uh, you know, obviously you know, with the – go ahead. No, I think, you know, that, that's a good – it's a great question. We have considered a number of different venues and, and different things. I, I think at the point now we're looking hard at um, – we we'll all call hacking for the community or hacking for local. And I would just say in my mind, gun control is a great thing to, to, to take off. You know, lots of students are concerned about being unsafe in schools, and it, it's it's one of a bazillion problems you could find in cities. Yeah. But in my mind, every city of a million-plus people and above probably has a university in it. And the idea of being able to take community problems, hard problems that are not just tech but they're also policy that are uh, process problems, 
and have the city organizations, agencies, local community working with students using the same process to solve local problems has just a great, uh, I, there's just a lot of goodness there. Yep. Uh, so, so we're working with a couple of um, large nonprofit funds who, who we're now talking about uh, funding a couple of pilots to see how that comes together. So I, I hope to see something launched this year. I think we're headed that way. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, I think if you had the course material, you could offer it online uh, to subscribers, and you could run a virtual team, you know, teams, decentralized teams all around the world doing the exact same thing yeah, at the University of Kansas. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of transigence between, you know, local city problems and national security problems. There's not a whole lot of difference. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of data. There's uh, uh, autonomy, AI, uh, policy. Largely, it, cities are a microcosm of the same kinds of problems we find across the defense industry. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how can you – here's the call to action, I guess. How can people who hear this podcast uh, get involved? You know, where should they follow you online? Uh, what are some events maybe that are coming up or they should keep an eye out for? And who should they contact? You know, I say first and foremost, I say you know, tell people use your voice. And I, I write a lot. Steve Blank writes a lot. Uh, I know there are people that follow and read, but that process works so much better when when people add voice to it. Yeah. You know, send us your comments. I, you know, I one of us supposed to, you know, writing something on LinkedIn this morning, and, and a bunch of people like it. I say, you know, it's great. I want to hear what you got to say. I, I I don't necessarily always agree with everything I write, but the the ecosystem is vibrant and it's rich. It's much richer when there's actually a dialogue amongst us mm-hmm. and that causes us to think. Um, get involved. You know, a you know, an applaud Graham that you're involved mentoring a team in, I think, the Georgetown class. But I tell you, I learned more from teaching that class at Stanford than, than I probably do anyplace else. One, it's just a fantastic experience. So, you know, as we increase the number of universities um, teaching hacking for defense, there will be more opportunities for people to advise or mentor or get involved. If you're a student someplace, Take the class, get involved. Yeah. I, for other folks, you know, the class is driven largely by problems. Uh, and we are constantly in the hunt for new problems that can be inserted into that system. I, I mean, um, because BMT does the sourcing for all problems, regardless of whether it's for BMT's enterprise platform or whether it's for the nonprofit platform. I think we've got a deck of about 300 right now that we've been through in the last 18 months. If we expand the course, obviously that's going to have to expand just as fast. So, you know, get, getting problems out into the open are great. Uh, our partners at MD5 have been kind enough to actually fund a number of um, problem curation courses. I think the next one's at the Air Force Academy literally next week. Uh, I know that we are for MD5 teaching a Hacking for Defense Educators course at the University of Virginia in early, I think it's like 6 through 8 uh, June. And I think for the uh, Office of Naval Research, we're actually teaching one at Purdue two weeks after that. So lots of opportunities to get some training, get your hands on it. Uh, and I would just encourage folks, if you're curious, uh, get your name out there someplace and, and get into one of those those classes. 
So you have a formal relationship with MD5. What's the, what's the linkage there? So MD5 uh, funds the problem curation and uh, specifically funds another, a number of universities to offer Hacking for Defense courses. Okay. And as does the Office of Naval Research. Um, beyond that, there are a bunch of universities that actually do it on their own. Uh, but there are government agencies that that one fund uh, BMT to get to help them get their problems out and into an environment where they can do that. And there are others like MB5 and, and ONR who are actually uh, funding the universities to run the courses uh, so that they get more work out of what their basic research dollars are doing someplace. Okay. Let's say that I'm a young uh, military person getting ready to get out of the military, some transition veteran. I have a lot of um, operational experience. It's fresh. I've got a lot of ideas on how to improve things. I'm thinking about using my GI Bill or going right into the workforce. Is there anything that I can do as a veteran in transition to directly um, you know, play with uh, what you're doing. Yeah, and first and foremost, I, I think anything you can do to find your niche in terms of how to operationalize your experience. And my coaching to most veterans is, you know, you learn a bunch of things while you're in service. And fortunately, foremost is you have a sense of confidence in, in actually dealing with um, ambiguous situations and environments is don't forget what got you there because that's what will make you great in the business world or in the commercial yeah. world. It's not necessarily the skills you have the day you leave service that are important. It's, it's what you did to actually get them that counts, and, and you kind of have to be able to rely on that. In, in terms of, uh, you know, how do you – you get a lot of bright ideas about problems and things like that is, you know, one, I don't care whether you're involved in design thinking, agile, scrum, something else, find a platform to help you organize your thought that you're comfortable using and then expand beyond that platform to learn other things that will actually help make you very agile in problem solving. And I, you know, I'm quick to tell people that even, you know, BMT, because we, we built H4D and H4X, both of those programs uh, are merely intended to collect the best and brightest uh, platforms out there and apply the right tool at the right time and ensure that the value of one activity transitions to the next. Lots of decent ways to get involved. Pick one. Okay. That's good. Yeah, I always tell people you get hired as a specialist and, and retained and promoted as a generalist because you have to start filling in a lot of holes once you're in the door that nobody knew how to articulate on the job description. And so the life skills of being in the military teach you how to adapt and overcome. So the failure that a lot of transition veterans make is that they market themselves as generalists. They say, oh, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. When they need, In order to get in the door, they need to come across as someone who can specialize. But once they get in the door, it's, it's those life skills from being a veteran that really help them uh, succeed and excel. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say veterans and veteran spouses. Uh, you know, I, I can I talk yeah. to my wife all the time. Who did a master's degree in education who came to Palo Alto with me and you know, took an entry-level job at Stanford uh, that, because that's all she could get. 
she's um, been promoted every year since. Yeah. I mean, but, but it's the same effect. Uh, sometimes you have to be willing because you have a lot of great um, characteristics and traits that are highly valuable, but they're not refined, and you don't necessarily understand the language of the industry you're getting into. So you may have to be willing to take a step back. Sure. But but coming out of that, the trajectory upward is a hell of a lot faster than it is for your commercial peers. Okay. Yeah, that's good. So the last question, a different uh, persona. Uh, let's assume someone is a, uh, an entrepreneur. They're not in the university program. They're not a veteran, but they're a garage entrepreneur coming up with ideas left and right. And they hear this podcast and they think, oh, this is an amazing program. How can I participate? How can I create something that's of value to the ecosystem? Uh, are there certain gaps that you see? Uh, are there certain uh, opportunities that you see for um, supporting or auxiliary types of companies? You know, I've got them all over the place. I, I think virtually anything will fit the bill for, for different companies in terms of where the skill sets apply. I mean, obviously, there's a great need for operators. I also see a significant need for, and this has been a late epiphany on my part, a significant need for leadership on the human resources side of, particularly the startup community. And y'all have watched what happened to um, Uber and a lot of the other Silicon Valley companies. I I tell you, I watch this stuff happen in startups all the time. And having the discussion with other people about how do you imbue the culture of something into a, a company that's rapidly growing and doing things okay. when the leadership is so young that they have no experience in actually leading anything? It's really hard. Yeah. So I, I think there's there's a whole ocean of thought around, you know, developing leadership in that environment and the human resources um, applications and things that help people. I mean, how do you hire better? You do a better job. You know, I got a partner, uh, William Crusader, who's actually a master at hiring. And, you know, I encourage him to write more about what he's doing because I, I think that in many cases he's setting a pattern that think highly valuable to other people. Yeah. So, you know, I encourage everybody. If you've got an idea, get it out there and try it. Test it. Get feedback. Yeah, I, Be ready to I think very highly of William. William's a great guy. I've met him through Defense Entrepreneurs Forum and uh, exchanged a lot of ideas with him in, in, over the last couple of years. And uh, I, I love it when you're promoting him on uh, Twitter because it's, it definitely shows that you guys have a strong, you know, ingenuitive team. So um, sure. I think that's it for me. Do you, is there anything else you want to add before we close out? No, Graham, I, yeah, I really appreciate, you know, first what you've done to help harness the, you know, the intelligence community of, you know, lots of really bright people out there that, you know, love the fact that they have a place to connect and do some things. Um, I certainly appreciate the support that you personally are giving to uh, the students in the Georgetown class and, and the opportunity to kind of reach out and grab some more folks. So, you know, again, thanks, thanks for the chance. I'm happy to, to help where I can and, and talk to you again later. Okay, uh, yeah, happy to promote the program and signing off uh, from the recording.